The Start On Demand. On demand. A zebra mussel larva has been discovered in Shoal Lake, i.e. the source of Winnipeg's drinking water. Should we be concerned? We'll head to Michigan to find out how they once dealt with a similar situation. Canada's green industry is in the red. More discussion on recycling today, including how it's done in Winnipeg, and some of the things you need to know the next time you toss something into your blue bin. A football team in eastern Canada is now using smart helmets to help detect concussions. And should the government do our taxes for us on this tax deadline day? It turns out a lot of countries already have this system in place. Should Canada be next? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Tuesday, April 30th podcast for The Start. Right now, we want to talk more about recycling. Global News has been conducting a national investigation into recycling, and it's found the market for goods has dramatically changed, largely, as we discussed yesterday, because China has stopped accepting much of the world's recycling products. What we're learning today is that that means the market is flooded and buyers will only accept the highest quality material at a fraction of the cost. So that's presented some challenges for all sorts of cities in this country, including Winnipeg. But city councillor Cindy Gilroy says our recycling program is still in the black. So, for example, in 2017, we made $5 million off of our recyclables. So, uh, depending what the market is, is how much we get on our recyclables. So, and it, and it really is important that we educate people on what they can put in the blue box. So, making sure that you are putting just the recyclable products in there and that you're not putting waste. Because if you do contaminate that product, then it isn't good. So, Winnipeg hasn't gotten any shipments back because we because of contamination. So, we've got a good reputation there. So we want to make sure that we keep educating people that's really important that what they put in their blue bin has to be recyclables and not waste. So that perhaps tells me that we're doing a really good job at the sorting and to make sure we're not putting any recyclables that might be contaminated into those shipments so that we would lose money on them. But how much work is that requiring? Mark Kinsley is the supervisor of Winnipeg's Waste Diversion and joins us on the phone now. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Okay, so when those, we're good. I wonder how you guys are doing because I know even myself, I make a lot of recycling mistakes, I'm sure. And I'm curious when those blue bins come in, how much are you actually just tossing in a pile to the side because it's not recyclable to begin with? It has to go back to the landfill. Well, we're doing just fine. Um, I understand that it's a quite a hot topic and you just set it up great uh, with the councillor's uh, remarks. Um it has become more challenging in in the last 18 months or so with the uh, China situation. But, you know, at the same time, it's it's not that different than it always has been. It's It's always been about knowing what the acceptable list is for where you are, right? So Winnipeg has a little bit different list than Toronto, for example. So we just need to basically get back to the main point of getting yourself educated and knowledgeable of what you can put in and then i'll admit there's uh details that can confuse some people of you know how empty do things need to be and and you know not putting things together inside of things stuff like that so yeah there's definitely been um an interesting and challenge that that's come since china has changed their uh policies and ways but we're we're working our way through it Mark, so it sounds like we've got a good reputation, as Councillor Gilroy said, and so we're doing a lot of work ahead of time. What could we be doing better as consumers, those that are, those of us that are putting things in those blue bins? I know we were talking off air earlier this morning, just the idea that there's been a conveyance at some point in the last few years. Oh, you don't have to rinse out your glass jars and your and certain containers. Is there a message that that you'd like to take this opportunity to get out to Winnipeggers that maybe is most construed incorrectly. Absolutely. In the past, it was more about, hey, give us, we want to get the volume up. We want the, the, the amount of material. Now, it's the whole industry has shifted to quality, like pure quality. So um, that's kind of the confusion, and I don't blame people for, for you know, n- not being sure. So now it's, you know, educate yourself. If you can visit winnipeg.ca, see our list, see the, the different ways we want things to come in. Because, yes, now it has become the need to make sure that all containers are empty. 
Um, the best example is always, you know, get your spatula out for your peanut butter. Um, you know, liquid should be an easy thing, and yet we're, we do see a lot of drinks that aren't finished, which you paid for the drink, you might as well finish it type of thing. So there are more, um, the rules are actually being um, asked to be strictly followed now. Mark, so if, you, if you got a drink, sorry to interrupt, but I just, on the drink yeah. front, if you get that drink and it's half full in the bottle, does it just get tossed back into the landfill? Like you're not taking the time at the plant to then empty it out and clean it out on your end? Correct. So I, not every bottle that has liquid in it is going to end up at the landfill, but that that's the message we do need to put through that, we need to put things into the program to give them the best chance to make it to where they need to go to get sorted into their proper category so then they can move on to the next process of being remade, repurposed into new products. So anytime that these details aren't followed, the risk is that the stuff does or, or will end up having to go to the landfill. Do we have a percentage for that? Like how much of the stuff are you seeing that you end up having to just push back to the landfill because you don't have the ability to go through all that stuff all the time? Yeah, in Winnipeg, we're um, a little bit over 15%. Um, and it's it's been going up a bit in the last while. So we'd really like to see that number come down. And it, it, it's, you know a bit of hard work knowing getting yourself uh, knowledgeable on Winnipeg's acceptable list but at the same time it's quite simple so um, we're hoping that people can can take some time and, and find out what is because the more stuff that isn't acceptable that goes through the more risk of it needing to go to landfill and then it just causes issues at the sorting plant um, and for the whole program. So what happens then if you get a contaminant like a diaper in the middle of a pile of recyclables? How much of the stuff around said diaper ends up at the dump? I'm really glad you asked about that. Um, for whatever reason, it's it. those are have been increasing. Um, we're not sure why, but we've been trying to get out there and, and get the message. So think about it. Every person, think about it for yourself. Would you want to have to grab a diaper off a conveyor belt, you know, on a consistent basis and, you know, have to to put it in, in, in a garbage can. And, you know, the resounding answer would be no. So it's, it's, it's a matter of hygiene, health uh, for, for the workers, and more, most importantly, and then secondly, the quality, it, it degrades anything it ends up in big time. Like it's, it's a, you know, one of the worst things that the, uh, that can go into a, a commodity. So the buyers will say, we don't want any of it, if, even with one diaper. So we're hoping that we see a, you know, it goes from, there, there's, there's a lot coming in a week, and we want to see that go to zero. Mark Kinsley is the supervisor of Winnipeg's Waste Diversion, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Mark, thank you very much for the time. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Take care. But right now we want to talk about something that's going on at Dalhousie University. And Greg, you played football, right, in the I West did. End? Uh, actually, I, I played mostly in St. James. Oh, okay. Uh, for the St. James Rods, very proudly. And uh, was football is one of my favorite sports. Loved playing football. You ever had, and I'm guessing this is what they would have called it back when you played, you ever had your bell rung? Absolutely. And almost detrimentally, uh, one of the last plays I was ever involved in, I got... My feet taken out from underneath me, and a player speared me helmet to helmet. Oh, God. And actually jammed my spine, and I oh, ended wow. up cracking one of my vertebrae. Holy smokes. And it wasn't until uh, probably 15 minutes before the, the game the following week that our athletic therapist, Mike Brown from the University of Manitoba, wasn't present the week before. And he said, hey, I heard you, you had something happen last week. He says, I want to take a look at you. And he... He says, you don't look right. He says, you're not playing today. And I went for a follow-up on uh, on the Monday and determined that I had a cracked vertebrae. And so had I played in that game as I was planning to do, who knows? And that's the concern I had because you didn't know, even though you knew you had been hit hard. Sure. And then there are cases where, you know, I even watch my young kids' hockey games and someone goes into the boards and you think they get up and keep going, but I don't know what to look for or how long are you, are you supposed to be You're you thinking it's going to be someone passed out on the ground or not walking properly or like, you know, their eyes being all out of focus. It's going to be obvious and therefore I'll know if my kid has a concussion, right? Correct. And, and that was the popular notion for a long time that if... You weren't knocked out 
If he didn't black out, it wasn't all that serious. It, it was just a concussion. Run it off. Shake it off. You had your bell rung. It was just part of the game. So the issue of concussion in sport, I know it's been a passion of yours for a long time, Greg, has been in the spotlight for several years now with much of the discussion centered around risk for athletes long term and the protocols for athletes who have been involved in collisions or plays where there is a reasonable expectation that the athlete is at risk for brain injury. Yeah, prevention or limitation of risk is focused on reducing the types and frequency of contact in games or practices. Now we can add a critical piece of protective equipment to the list. Football players at Dalhousie University in Halifax are among the first in Canada to start using so-called smart helmets that transmit electronic alerts whenever a player's head receives an impact that could lead to a concussion. Each Riddell Speedflex helmet is valued at more than $500. They're equipped with sensors that record individual hits and multiple collisions. Data used to compile player-specific profiles, also part of the benefits of these helmets. If the intensity of a big hit or a series of collisions rises above a certain threshold, the signal transmitted to the sidelines is picked up by a wireless monitor that displays an alert. Mark Haggett is the head football coach at Dalhousie, home of the Tigers. He joins us from Halifax this morning. Mark, good morning to you, sir. Yes, good morning, guys. Go Bombers. How are we doing? <laughs> Very good. We're doing great, Mark. And uh, we had an extensive conversation yesterday, so I appreciate you taking time with us again this morning. How do you expect these helmets to help your players? Yeah, absolutely. We're we're very excited uh, to partner with Rydell on this venture. You know, the the smarter football uh, phrase is coming out a lot over this project. And basically what we want to be able to do is to limit the amount of concurrent head impacts for our athletes, both in practice and in game situations. Um, as As you guys just mentioned, you know, back in the day when I played high school football, you know, I mean, this is dating myself a little. In, in 98, um, it was a very suck it up and get back in there princess kind of protocol. And it was always up to the athlete whether you went back in the game or not. And I remember uh, playing high school football. I went both ways on the defense and offensive line. And there were times that I'd sit in my shower uh, on the ground with the hot water running over me after a game for an hour, not even knowing where I was. Um, these helmets, you know, and obviously how far we've come in the last 10, 20 years with research, eliminating the stigma around concussions and coaches being trained and certified in concussion protocol, having our trainers uh, do baseline concussion tests before we even start the season. We're hoping to eliminate those situations for athletes because some of those impacts that you don't see, that a ref doesn't see, that a coach doesn't see, that a trainer doesn't see, the smaller ones concurrently over a period of time can lead up to just one of those small collisions uh, making it a bad day for that athlete. So with the smart technology in the helmet, those sensors send uh, a wireless signal to the sideline, and if that impact rates great enough against the national average for that position, then we can pull that athlete off the field and the trainer can assess them in order for them to either sit and go through concussion protocol and have a doctor sign off on them going back, returning back to the game, or ultimately, you know, them being sidelined for a longer period of time to make sure that their concussion symptoms are gone before before they ever get back even on the practice field. So whose job is it to, in this scenario, to monitor? It goes to the trainer. The trainer would be looking at the signals, and they would then go to the coach and say, I'm noticing A, B, or C. We need to pull them? Yeah, absolutely. And and or a coach would have the monitor as well. And, and you know, where it's ultimately my responsibility, um, it, it doesn't really matter to me who has the monitoring system just as long as we know that that athlete needs to come off the field. So whoever gets that alert, they're going to let the head coach know, which is me, and we're yanking that that athlete as quick as possible. How do you you determine the 
the how do you determine the threshold? Like they, you know, that the the helmet will say when it hits to a certain threshold, then a signal is triggered. But the threshold for Greg might be different than the threshold for me or Loren. Yes, and it does it, it does make a player profile um, intelligently for each athlete, and it does measure it against their own series of impacts. So if you have a nose tackle or a running back that has a lot more head impacts than say a quarterback or a wide receiver, those notifications are going to go differently for those athletes because their heads, their heads in the game, you know, pardon the pun a lot more often than a quarterback or a receiver. And then basically with those small concurrent impacts, it's not going to register necessarily to the handheld device on the sideline at that time. It's only going to register major impacts. What it does is after the game, we're going to download that data or after the practice, and then we're going to take a look at all 65 of our players and see where those smaller impacts have occurred. And if we see that most of the smaller impacts are occurring with our defensive line per se, then we need to teach the defensive line how to use their hands differently and not getting their heads, you know, in the middle of collisions. Coach, we're seeing the CFL eliminate uh, equipment in a lot of their practices. They're reducing the amount of contact uh, during practice. And so there have been changes within the football culture. It's been a long turnaround. It's been a long time in coming. Uh, I can't help as a parent but think that this is going to alleviate some of the concern. I don't care if your kids are 5, 12, or 22. You've got concern when it comes to any sport that involves the potential for brain injury. What what feedback are you getting from the parents at Dalhousie? I, I'm a little overwhelmed about the feedback from the parents, and it didn't really become real for me um, with the initiative we're taking until some of those parents started reaching out to me and saying how happy they are that Jimmy is going to have this helmet on his head in the fall and how proud they are that they're a part of this program and that we're taking these steps in order to protect our athletes. And for me, once that, you know, once that article finally broke and it came out in the news, um, that was, that was the most positive feedback that I've gotten out of any of this was, was from the parents. And I had a lot of parents reach out to me, individually as well it makes you feel good about what you're doing at the end of the day and you know nobody can eliminate you know the boogeyman from the sport and the boogeyman is is concussions but certainly you know since i've taken over the program in 2016 we've made it a top priority to eliminate the stigma around concussions i've talked about it you know almost in every second or third meeting and you know, this next step and level of protection is going to give us every tool that is possible out there in the world to help protect our athletes and, and keep them safe and keep us playing the game that we love safely. Mark Haggett, thank you very much for joining us this morning. We appreciate the time. Yeah, you're welcome. Go Bombers. Mark Haggett, <laughs> head football coach at Dalhousie University, home of the Tigers. He's joining us live from Halifax this morning. Once again, Dalhousie now using smart helmets with their football players, the helmets that measure hits and detect concussions. <music> Mackling McGarry, McNabb, Jeff Braun is here. Kelly Moore is here. Jeff Fortier. And the headline at cjob.com and globalnews.ca, Plateau Mont-Royal Borough Mayor blasted for comments on flooding. This has to do with a Facebook post that the mayor, Luke Ferrandez, put up over the weekend in the wake of the intense flooding that's being experienced in Quebec. Monday, for example, more than 6,000 homes remained underwater. 9,000 people have been forced from their homes due to floodwaters in the province. We've actually put some video up on our... CJ will be Instagram of a woman in a kayak in her living room surveying the damage. Uh, just, you know, think about that for a second. Picture yourself sitting in a kayak floating. In your own home. In your um, own home. Not outside yeah. your home. In your home. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it's, uh, it's hard to watch uh, because you can just hear the pain in her voice as she realizes what's happened to her home. But what happened with this mayor? Yeah, it basically saying, um, using some expletives, Suggesting that we get what we deserve. His post started with the words, F you all, (laughs) all of us, 
We know that we shouldn't build on floodplains. We know we should protect the woodlands that remain. We know we shouldn't revise the law on wetlands. We know we shouldn't build a third link. We know we shouldn't build two stadiums. We know, we know, we know. We know everything that we shouldn't do. We've known for a long time. And then he goes on to say, so basically, this is to, this, to everyone this morning, F you, we get what we deserve. Good Lord. Sounds like a fun guy. <laughs> <laughs> He's under a lot of stress. Now, it raised two things. First, Greg said, well, we want our politicians to speak honestly. Yeah, so. that's yeah. And it also reminded me uh, there was no expletive deletives involved. But Gary Philman said very similar things in 1997. And actually, you probably thought I was looking at the article about the Montreal mayor. I'm actually looking, I'd gone back in time to find these oh, quote, wow. this quote from, from Gary Philman because I don't want to misquote him. I, I, I like Gary Philman as a person. Uh, but he said that uh, with um, my, the, I'm reading Dan Lett's article here from 2009 with muddy water of the Red River having its way with large tracts of southern Manitoba. Tough not to think of former Premier Gary Philman's comments in the 1997 flood of the century about the risks we assume when we choose to live in a, f- a floodplain. Philman suggested perhaps unwisely that people who choose to live on a floodplain need to accept the risks because there is only so much government can do to protect them. And I don't think that's uh, unreasonable. I think that's fact. Yeah, absolutely. I know one of the things when we have bought houses in Winnipeg is we've asked for uh, a history of flooding. You know, are we living in a flood area? What is the percentage of, you know, of, of of that happening? Same thing when you go to buy your home insurance. You know, you find yeah. out pretty quick. You know, but you and, can live on a river and say, obviously, I'm putting myself at risk to flooding because I'm right next to a body of water. But there are lots of people. We've seen, like, cities go Calgary when it was flooded. Like, yeah. all these places where it was just such a crazy year, one in 1,000-year flood yeah. that now I'm supposed to be, like, um, assuming the risk of that when I'm 17 blocks from the river? Like, I don't know if that's fair. No, that's not fair. No, I, it, what I'm talking about is the law of percentages. Sure. Like, if you're if you're 90% safe, then that's, I, I don't mind those percentages. And then the 10%, you, then you just have to live with. But the, the timing of this Montreal mayor's comments are probably not good. Sure. But you can sense there's frustration that he's tried to warn people before about progress and, and what the price of progress is. And, I think and now most, we're seeing that. I think most people are aware of it themselves, like, like you are. They know that. They don't need the mayor snarking at them on Facebook to tell them. It's like he's not giving out any brand new information that's useful to anyone. I guess it becomes in the conversation of where did, like if, if the government's saying to you, we can't help you anymore. We've helped you 17 years in a row or 18 years in a row and you've done nothing to flood protect your property, then that can be the annoyance. But I have heard people say elsewhere when I lived outside of Manitoba, why do people live, it was in the year of the 2009 flood, I think, why do people live there? And I was like, in all of the prairies or like it's not like the the climate change has changed things like in Winnipeg for example all the water from Alberta east comes eventually ends up in our system somehow and we're supposed to we're supposed to say that that's the risk we're willing to take I don't know well you people there's what 30 plus million people in California earthquakes you've got got right everywhere's got something and so I don't know why it is that floods seem to be on the low priority list in terms of natural disasters that get this respect and this outpouring of support from governments. Hurricanes, they're right there, right away. But when it's a flood, there seems to be this sort of idea, well, you kind of knew it was coming. Why do you live there in the first place? Well, if that was the case in 1950, they would have rolled up the sidewalks and said, well, I guess we got to move Winnipeg. 500 miles, like to Dauphin or something, so that we don't have to worry about flooding. Everywhere has something, and this is what they deal with in Montreal, in Ottawa, different parts of Canada. It's just the risk of, of living where we live. He's deleted that post, by the way. No, you don't say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think if he even just dropped the F, maybe not I'd put that in there. He might have had more people listening rather than the outrage, but I don't know. You can read more at cjob.com. The headline, Plateau Mont-Royal, Borough Mayor Blasted for Comments on Flooding. We've also linked it to our 680 CJOB Instagram. We'd love for you to follow us there.
How concerned are you about the discovery of a zebra mussel larva in Shoal Lake, the source of Winnipeg's drinking water? Extremely concerned, somewhat concerned, or not at all. No need to panic. Log on to cjob.com and cast your vote. And now we're going to go to Michigan, Loren. Well, we want to go to Michigan because, as we just said, a single zebra mussel larva has been found in the water supply, Winnipeg's drinking supply. In Shoal Lake, we already know it's in the Red River. Uh, we know that there are zebra mussels in Lake Winnipeg and in a couple, handful of other lakes in the province, and of course, right, right across North America. And one of the cities and states that's been battling zebra mussels for years is Michigan. And for more on how that's impacted drinking supplies or the infrastructure in that state, we're joined by Gary Fonenstiel, a senior research scientist at Michigan Tech Research Institute. Good morning, Gary. Good morning. Well, let's start with the impact the zebra mussel has had on infrastructure. It's my understanding there are some cities or were some cities or towns along the lake that had these little guys really clog up the system. Absolutely. Um, I think realizing the Great Lakes serves as a water source to millions um, of people that they had some major problems, particularly the one that highlighted um, and was in the news quite a bit, was uh, Monroe, Michigan, where they had a a water emergency. They actually had to run out and put um, um, temporary pipes in on the ice to get um, water in for the town because the mussels had clogged completely um, the water intakes. Oh, my word. We don't have that anymore because people are used to uh, mussels now. We not only have zebra mussels, we have quagga mussels, which have replaced and become far more of a nuisance than zebra mussels, uh, but they have adapted. The water um, intakes, the power plants, all the people that use water have adapted with either chemical treatment or physical treatment to remove the mussels, and it's just the cost of doing business. So it it has added billions of dollars to the cost of these plants and for the whole area, um, but they they pretty well now have um, treated it and um, can deal with it. Gary, you mentioned a different kind of mussel, and you're saying they're even more of a nuisance. Can you explain and rename it for us? Because that's the first time I'm hearing of this species. Absolutely. It, it's the quagga mussel. It's the same genus, which means it's closely related to the zebra mussel, but a different species. The zebra mussel is um, Dreisena polymorpha. The quagga mussel is Dreisena uh, bugensis. And uh, the big difference between them is, and which made it much more problematic for the Great Lakes, and I'm sure would be the same for Winnipeg um, or most of Manitoba, is that it, it basically the, the quagga mussel tolerates cold temperatures much better than the zebra mussel. The zebra mussel needs the water to get above 10 degrees Celsius or 50 degrees Fahrenheit for it to reproduce. So typically when it came in, it caused most of its problems in shallow, warm water areas of the Great Lakes, like the western basin of Lake Erie, where Monroe, Michigan was, um, like Saginaw Bay, Green Bay, um, other bays and warm places. And, And the second thing about zebra mussels, it needs hard substrate. Okay, it doesn't do well on mud. It needs, it's got a short um, intake siphon, and it's got to attach to something hard. Now, the quagga mussel came from the same region, the same area, a close related relative, doesn't have those same requirements. It does very well in cold water. It's basically found in most of the profundo regions of the Great Lakes. Like, you can literally, not literally, figuratively, walk across Lake Michigan on a bed of quagga mussels now because it does very well in those cold, deep, profundo regions. And it also does well, and this is the other kicker, and it lives in mud. It doesn't need a hard substrate because it's got a longer intake siphon. So in the Great Lakes, um, the quagga mussels have replaced the zebra mussels. You just described like Lake Michigan. I was just going to say, you just described the lakes in Winnipeg are softer bottoms in mud. And so to know that there's a, we've been talking about this, we've been warned about the quagga, but to know that that just adapts so well and thrives in that environment is, uh, I don't want to say terrifying, but uh, certainly concerning. Oh, absolutely. And it's it's the future, okay? Uh, Because the problem is, you know, the Great Lakes are like the beachhead in North America because of all the transit in uh, for the shipping. And once they get established there, they move. And, you know, there's quagga mussels out west in the western United States uh, being transferred, have been transported from the Great Lakes on boats, recreational boats once they, you know, get into the, to the region. So, yeah, they're, they're a problem all over. And quagga mussels will be a bigger problem than zebra mussels. I mean, they're both a problem, don't get me wrong. And, and you have to deal with them, and it's going to cost a lot of money. Uh, but there are places, and what I would say, you know, it's not all – bad or, you know, the sky is falling type of mentality, uh, because there's places in Michigan, you know, and we have them in, in many, many lakes, majority of lakes in Michigan, not just the Great Lakes, but the Inland Lakes. But there are some lakes that are all surrounded by lakes that have mussels. 
And we just lost our guest, Gary Fonenstiel, Senior Research Scientist at Michigan Tech Research Institute. And that's uh, It's alarming bad. stuff, too. Uh, we'll hopefully get him back on if we can in the future. The couple things that to recap there is about the idea is that it's not bad for the drinking water. You can still drink the water if the zebra mussels are in it. It's about clogging up the infrastructure. But he said it got so bad in that one Michigan city that they had to build new pipes uh, in an emergency situation just to push the water through. So it's not that you can't drink it. It's just that what are you going to spend to keep that water moving? Right. And then he says we've adapted, but you're still, what are you spending to keep the water moving with the pipes? Well, he's back on the line. Gary, we lost you there for a moment uh, while you were... Yes, and I'm sorry if it was me because I'm in rural... I, I live up on Lake Superior, so pretty rural in Michigan. So it probably was me, and I'm sorry. I apologize. Oh, nothing to apologize for. We're used to poor cell signals here, so don't worry about it. You, you were mentioning, and I don't know if you wanted to use the word positive, but the, because you've seen them in other lakes, what is the is upside, if there is any? Well, no, I, I didn't meant there was an upside, but I meant it, it's not all the sky's falling. Because what I was going to point out is there's some lakes in Michigan, through a combination of education and enforcement, have been, you know, because we have a lot of lakes in Michigan like you do in Manitoba, and um, basically they are having even no mussels in them, quaggas or zebra mussels, because the people in it, the, the lake owners community, you know, they educate everybody about bringing their boats in. they got to wash them before they come in, and they have volunteers at the boat ramps to basically police it, to have, they have hot water there so they can wash the boats off, power washers, and they can uh, put muffs on and flush out the motor. If that boat owner comes in to launch his boat and he said, I came from, you know, Lake George, and, you know, Lake George has mussels. So they'd say, okay, we got to treat your boat before we can put you in this lake. And that lake, like one lake I can think of in Michigan, Glen Lake's done a great job of keeping mussels out. So it's not impossible, but it's just, you know, you're going to have to up the education and enforcement game if you want to keep them out of your lake once they would become established, let's say, in several lakes in Manitoba. Gary, I just have like one minute, but I'd like to know the impact this has had on recreation in terms of beaches in particular. We love our beaches here in Manitoba. Has Have the, the mussels, the two types that you've identified here, including the zebra mussels, made it difficult for people to enjoy their time at the beach? Not really. Now, in places where they've had huge densities of mussels, okay, because the other thing I say real quickly is the calcium hardness of the water determines how many mussels. Like Lake Superior has relatively no mussels in it, zebras or quaggas. Lake Michigan, which is relatively hard compared to Lake Superior, has a lot. They need calcium to build their shells. So, but in, so that's just one thing to remember, too, that the lake does, it does vary by lake. Um, but, no, I don't think the beaches. Now, the only place I can mention that the beaches, I know where the beaches have been a problem, and what it is is for just the shells that would be there after the mussels die. People would walk on the beach, and these shells can be sharp, sharp and hard on, on the feet, that that's for some people been a concern in the beaches of western Lake Erie. But as the mussel numbers have plummeted in Lake uh, through the initial establishment, it hasn't been a big deal. I, I, I don't think it's a big beach issue per se because they're not likely to attach in sand and grow in sand. You know, they'll be washed up, for, you know, when you get a big storm or something like that. But um, I, I haven't seen the big issue for the beaches. I mean, the big concern certainly are the water intakes and the clarity of the water changes, the fishery changes, because what you're doing is like in most of the Great Lakes, um, all the production, all the um, photosynthesis and stuff was occurring in the water column. And mussels act like a conveyor belt to bring all that, those particles and energy down to the bottom. So they really shift you from being a, what we would call a pelagic or water column dominated system to more of a benthic dominated system. So that changes the fisheries and changes how the whole ecosystem functions. And so that's a bigger deal for many of the places around here for fisheries. You know, we've had fishery collapses, other problems, other issues. And whenever things happen these days, they invariably, you know, blame the mussels because either directly or indirectly, they're just linked to a lot of ecosystem problems in the Great Lakes. Gary Fonenstiel, Senior Research Scientist at Michigan Tech Research Institute. Thank you so much for the time this morning. We very much appreciate it. Hey, no problem. You have a great day. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, and Greg, when we were on the afternoon show, Mackling and McGarry, from 1 until 4, we spent a lot of time talking to the Mood Disorders Association of Manitoba, and uh, now Hal Anderson has that pleasure, so it's our distinct pleasure to get to sneak in a visit with the Mood Disorders this morning. Absolutely, and uh, we're going to tell you about an event that's going to uh, benefit uh, depression and programs uh, for women that are battling depression, all proceeds from... 
this year's Winnipeg Run for Women for the Mood Disorders Association of Manitoba will be in support of women's mental health, such as peer group, 365 day a year phone lines and therapy programs. Joining us to talk about this, Ali Raposo. She is Mood Disorder Association of Manitoba Women's and Youth Program Director. Great to see you again, Allie. Thanks for having me. So we'll talk about the event in particular in just a moment now. But by 2020, severe depression is predicted to be the second leading cause of disability around the world, with, so, with women being twice as likely to be impacted as men. Ultimately, one in three women will develop a mental health disorder at some point in their lives, in part due to inequalities in income, gender-based violence, and subordinate social status. So this is obviously an important issue, and a lot of people will ask, why is there a separate focus at mood disorders with regard to women? That answers it partially mm-hmm. from your point of view, why this is a specific uh, direction in terms of programming and outreach. For sure, yeah. I think you, I think you kind of nailed it in terms of getting those statistics and putting a face to them. Um, in particular, this is really important because exercise has been, you know, statistically proven and, and research has been done and studies have been done and shows that um, exercise, like aerobic exercises, even doing a little bit of them a day can significantly increase and actually replace um, some medication and SSRIs and antidepressants. So um, doing things such as slow jogging or running or anything like that could be a huge reason to start getting those endorphins running and get us some of those really happy chemicals that we want from our brain, like serotonin, dopamine. So this is a fantastic way to not only put a face to the statistics and how much women do need the mental health programs, but also to get people running and active and show them that they're all alternative methods. It's a bit of a vicious cycle because I I hear, okay, so we're uh, we're more prone, if that's the right word, to possible depression. We all know exercise is a key to health, mental health, physical health. But if I'm not feeling well, it's really hard to get out the door mentally, Mm -hmm. not just physically. If I I feel depressed and I've been there before, just even on a blue Sunday or whatever, it's really hard to go. So how do you encourage more women to take care of themselves in that way for the benefit of their mind? For sure. Yeah. Like, I mean, for myself too, it's hard, right? You get out of bed some days and you're just like, eh, it's not happening. But some days, you know, um, I try to say baby steps, baby steps. If you can, if you can start off by taking the stairs at work instead of the elevator, if you can start off by doing small things, like maybe park your car a little bit further, walk to it that way. I mean, getting a little bit of exercise, you notice tremendous, tremendous change in your mood. And that's basically what we're really getting at is that. It doesn't have to be a 30 minute run every day. No, absolutely not. It's like, start off small, start off with 15 minutes, you know, start off with getting your heart rate up to, you want to make it like 25 beats more per minute and that will really increase some serotonin some dopamine levels in your brain why are women more likely to experience depression well i mean as we kind of said there's a lot of different factors including socioeconomic cultural um the things that come along with all the stresses of motherhood and stresses of being a woman in general in society so um, that's what I see a lot of in in my work that I do and the work that we address is um, we really focus in and keen in on those issues that, that would be just for women. So things like the pressures of um, body image, the pressures of things that women typically face more in society than We've been talking a lot over the last, oh, two years or so about the emergence of peer support and the value of peer support. And that's mentioned in this as a goal is to to raise money for this. Talk a little bit about peer support, peer-to-peer counseling and and why it's so effective, Allie. Sure. Yeah. So peer support is phenomenal. You know, I've used, I've utilized the mental health care system myself um, prior to working at mood disorders and then looking at mood disorders and and how they model their peer support and how they do that is, is phenomenal. Um, it's not a an area where it's a counselor and it's a you versus them kind of thing or a psychiatrist, which is you versus them. Those are all great resources as well. But peer support is literally what it is, is a peer with another peer. So it's always somebody who has lived experience. It's really, really crucial that we have that factor, that that person has lived experience so that they're able to connect with you, relate with you and say, like, I've been there. I understand that. And, the, and it feels this way. And that's not how I feel about it. So it's really more so giving them the tools they need to to take on the world on the their own and empower them while helping each helping ourselves to help them realizing that you're not the only person that that, that's been down the the road it goes a long way so we have to talk about the event real quick brett what have you got in front of you here you're so good at firing off the uh the uh details of things winnipeg run for women may 12th the website mood disorders manitoba.ca or you can go to runforwomen.ca should also point out it's officially called the shoppers love you run for women and it's canada's first 
and only women's and girls running race series, and it's benefited women's mental health initiatives across the country, raising over $6 million for local mental health services since 2013. So get registered for the run May 12th. Ali Raposo has been our guest, Women's and Youth Programming Director at the Mood Disorders Association of Manitoba. Ali, thank you so much for the visit. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. We learned in our previous half hour that Loren McNabb does not do her own taxes. Her spouse takes care of that I for did her. Just lately. I have done my own taxes. It's well, not just, a criticism. Well, I just... <laughs> just what so is stop, that? Just what is, what stop is insulting that? me. <laughs> do, you do, your, do you do your own taxes, No, Magley? no, I don't. I don't either. And even I when shouldn't I say I do them. I, like, we, we don't do them. We take them to somebody. Okay. And in my past, I would take them to somebody... And then I got married, and it was one of those things that he would say, "I got this." Do we have we done? Have you done your taxes? And I'd be like, <laughs> "Not so much." And then that got made one too many times, and you're here. And I don't, yeah. Even when I go to H and R Block and watch them doing what they're doing, I just get so confused. There's so many columns and rows and numbers. I don't know. I, I can't be entrusted with this. But this. Is interesting to yeah, me. Many Canadians are scrambling in time for tonight's midnight deadline. In case you didn't know, sorry to be the bearer of bad news. For your 2018 personal income taxes, there are actually countries where your taxes are done for you, at least the preliminary part and the basics. It's called preliminary tax filing. It's something we should look at in Canada, perhaps, to educate and promote this possibility. We are joined by Toby Sanger, Executive Director of Canadians for Tax Fairness. Good morning, Toby. Good morning, Greg. I uh, really appreciate you taking some time with us today, a busy day for many Canadians. So why don't we start with the basics? What is a preliminary tax filing? Who's doing it? And, 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 and you know, what is it? What does it entail? Well, I first found out about this a number of years ago when I had somebody who was working um, uh, along with me who was from Norway. It was tax season, and uh, and she said, look at this. Uh, here's my tax return. The government does it for me. And uh, I, I just checked through it, and uh, and it's wonderful. It takes a few minutes to do it. So I was reminded of that because I was up late last night as well uh, doing my taxes. <laughs> so i got to say that. And, and uh, I... I I I I do that myself. I've always thought like, why why should I pay money, especially to some private company or some private person, in order to in order in order to file the taxes? And there have been a number of different. There are numbers. There's about three dozen countries around the world that do this. Um, um, in uh, in countries like Sweden and Denmark, I think seventy to eighty percent of the people file their taxes this way. Uh, of course, it's an option. And there have been pilot projects in other places. Uh, California had a pilot project. Um, um, there, there are kind of varying degrees of this in different uh, in different countries. The thing is, it would save a lot of Canadian families and uh, um, not just hours of frustration, but um, but also a lot of money. You spend a lot of money on, uh, on, on the tax filing software or to going to H&R Block or, or others. Walk me through what this would look like, because I think there might be some at home saying, wait a minute, I'm going to rely on the government who wants to take my money from you know, helping me file my taxes on my money. Well, what uh, what happens in different countries is 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 the is the, is the, is the CRA or well, the equivalent of this tax agency would send out a preliminary form for you with the information that they already have. And they've got quite a they've got uh, the, the, the T4 forms, they've got, uh, they've got a lot of that information. And then you make adjustments. Now, it wouldn't work for everybody. Some people got more complicated forms. Um, but, um, but individuals would receive that information and they could, they could check it over. So, so it's an optional, it would be an optional thing. Uh, but, um, but where it's been tried, it's been, uh, it's been very successful. Could it be done in Canada? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, to give this government credit they have put more money into volunteer tax credits there there is something actually um for for very simple returns people can um can now phone it's a it's a pilot project you can phone up um, um people sorry cra and fill it in um, um 
So, so absolutely, it could be done here. Um, um, there was a proposal in the states to uh, to to roll this out uh, um, um, nationally uh, by a person who was Obama's uh, um, uh, economic advisor, Austin Goolsbee, um, and he estimated that about four. And they've got a more complicated tax system than we do, uh, um, um, but that about forty to fifty percent of the people that it, uh, 40 to 50 percent could take advantage of it. Oh, is that the percentage? Like how many Canadians do we think aren't filing on time and then being penalized for not filing? And and that's a and that's a really good point. I mean, people get get, get penalized for late returns and things like that. And then and another issue, I mean, the one that's, that concerns me, I used to when I lived up uh, up north in the Yukon, I did um, volunteer tax tax filing for people. A lot of as our governments are delivering more social benefits and um, um, different benefits in different ways through the tax system, so for instance, Canada Child Benefit and others, uh, a lot of people aren't, aren't, aren't receiving that because they're not filing their taxes. They get money. They, they're entitled to money, um, but they're not receiving it. So estimates are, we don't really have the figures, uh, but there are different estimates that 20% over 20% of uh, families on on First Nations reserves aren't receiving Ken child benefits, and that's a lot of money. It's uh, it's thousands of dollars. The same thing with the climate action incentive payment. Uh, uh, a lot of people just don't know about that, right? You, and you have to check it off on, on, on your or your, your your return. So, um, so so this is the type of thing that could uh, increase awareness of that. Yeah, and I'm just thinking of the number of people that have a very basic return. It's their T4 income. Maybe they have some supplementary income that comes on a T4E or some other slip. Then you've got your basic maybe deduction for rent. You've got your child tax credit. And, of course, now in certain provinces, including Manitoba, we have the tax credit for the uh, carbon tax, uh, the money that you can get back there. And for a lot of folks, that's it. That's all there is. That's all they have. Exactly. So, so, so about fifty percent. Uh, for uh, um, I, I estimate maybe about uh, you know around fifty percent, maybe more, um, could do that. And the other thing is that uh, that that if you have something like this, I think there's more of an incentive to um, to create a to have a simpler tax system as well, but on on behalf of the government as well. Um, Unfortunately, sometimes when this is when this has been proposed in different uh, countries or jurisdictions or provinces or states, um, the tax preparation industry, H and R Block, um, um, the company that owns uh, TurboTax and others, have uh, lobbied against it because they'd be losing business. But from from a society or economy point of view, this makes sense. I mean, accountants certainly wouldn't go out of business. A lot of people, you know. Couldn't couldn't take advantage of this, but for um, lower income, for people with simple tax returns, uh, it's uh, I, I see it as a win win win. You know, it's a win for the government. Um, don't have to deal with these complicated things with uh, with um, uh, checking out these different things when people don't file paper paper forms and uh, and, uh, and and you get the benefits to the people that uh, that are entitled to them. How much more labor would it create for the government to? take this on that's a good question i don't know i mean i i'm not sure it would create more i i think it would be somewhat the same i don't like uh, there have been some estimates in some other uh, jurisdictions that might be a little bit more might be a little bit less uh, but, but 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 it wouldn't cost a lot more i don't think but uh, but, but that's a good question I uh, um, don't know, but um, but the but the pilots that have been done have shown that it isn't uh, all that much more. I mean, they want us to do it electronically, that rather than by paper, right? Uh, uh, and and in this way, you'd have uh, you, you um, um, it would be more automatic in this way. So, all right, Toby Sanger, executive yeah. director of Canadians for Tax Fairness, joining us live on six eighty CJOB. Toby, thank you. Thank you very much, and uh, the deadline is midnight tonight. Mm, boy. <laughs> Happy for, taxing. Yeah, for those who have not done it yet, 
I wish you Godspeed today. Uh, yeah, no, it's funny. I used to work at the taxation center on Stapon as a student when I was in high school. That was back when everyone was still filing their tax returns on paper. And they would just bring in high school students to help sort them. Essentially, oh we just go through them. They gave we had a list. Uh, like you have this has to go first. This goes second. This goes third. And then all this other stuff goes in the back, and it has to be stapled and nicely. And it was just to make it so that when it went into processing, it was all in the right order, and everything was. Think ready about to all go. that paper coming in there. I don't have an issue with them trying to streamline things or make it easier, but I'm not so sure we're in a position that we're ready for it. I remember moving back to Canada from Israel, and. Um, they had me still listed out of country at tax time, and so I phoned them up and say I'm here, and I can't remember the exact language that was used, but they couldn't, they didn't have me in the system, and I was like, well, don't you have another computer through Passport Canada that would show like I crossed back into Canada a year ago, and I have a child, and I'm oh, married. Those, and, those don't talk to each and other. And they just they, none of the systems talk to each other, so my faith is really, really low, and it's not to harp on government, and and it's, I'm harping on the systems. It seems like there's no connection or streamlining, right? And just so, realize, just realize, if you fill out your taxes and you misplace a decimal or change a number I, that's different from what they have in their system, they're just going to adjust it anyway sure. when they give you your statement of adjustments and and uh, they're the final decision maker in any regard. So this is obviously not going to work for everyone, but it's no. going it would be a, a possibility and a nice fit for people on fixed income where they're where they're the where their tax return doesn't change very often or very little if at all. But in all my years of doing taxes, I think the odds of me getting back what I think I'm going to get back mm-hmm. are, is always lower, right? Yeah, see, and so then again, go. you put you put it in the hands of the government, I, I would feel like my number might go down even more. You know, the accountant says, you're going to get this back. That's never what, I might get close to that, but never that. Yeah, we got a text here, 204-780-6868 that says, no, thank you. The last thing we need is more government accountants at the trough. Your guest clearly Felt uncomfortable talking about the cost. I don't trust the government to do my taxes. They take enough of our money. Signed, D. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think. And hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global. And on Instagram, at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.